You're listening to audio from Red Rocks Baptist Church. For more information about our church, visit our website at redrocksbaptist.org or follow us on Instagram at Red Rocks Baptist. I came across a video this week from 2021, and there's a group of men in Ukraine. It's late at night, and they seem like they were drinking, and there's a, a group of them, and two men start to fight. And it was kind of one-sided at first. Uh, one man just nails another one, just decks him in the face, and the guy stumbles and staggers, but he comes right back, and he takes another shot to the face. And this one sends him kind of reeling, and he kind of skitters a little bit. He's hit some grass, so he looks like he was on ice skates. And then he reaches into his pocket and casually walks up to the group and drops something in their midst. And at first, I couldn't see what it was. But the video, surprisingly, all of a sudden becomes really shaky because the guy holding the camera is running for his life. That man dropped a grenade in the midst of their little group of people. And I'm thinking to myself, is that guy nuts? Who, who does that? And apparently it's more common over there in that part of the world because you can get 10 to 15 years in prison for dropping a grenade in a street fight. That's unthinkable to us. We, who in the world would do that? And yet we do that very thing when we drop our words like weapons into other people. We destroy other people with our words. Our words are weapons. Your words are weapons. Proverbs 12, 18 says that the words of the reckless pierce like swords, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Our words, even our language conveys this. They, they stab someone in the back with what they said, or they cut someone to pieces, or they can blow up someone else's day by what I said, or maybe you sling something at someone like you would an arrow Weaponizing words is unfortunately very common, but the scriptures are also very clear. It's sinful. It has no place in the life of the believer. It has no place in the body of Christ. But if we're going to talk about some of the more common sins that we tolerate in our lives, the sins of the tongue would be near the top of the list. And Colossians 3, 8 through 11, our text today, Paul calls us to lay off sinful speech. And as I said last week, the, the message is very simple. Christians who treasure Christ must put off sinful speech. So if you're not putting off sinful speech, you're either not treasuring Christ, which is a heart problem, or you're disobeying that, which is another problem. If you are legitimately trying to love the Lord, we're not perfect we all fail, but if you can say, that's my heart's testimony, I want to love the Lord, I want Christ to be my treasure, then your words need to match your confession. But we have a dilemma, don't we, when it comes to our speech, because our tongues are so difficult to control. James 3 goes on in great detail about this. James says, no person can tame the tongue. It's an unruly evil, full of deadly poison. Really? What, why is that? Why is the tongue so hard to contain? Because the tongue is the dipstick of the heart. The things in your heart come out through your mouth. 
your lips broadcast the silent transmissions of your heart. Jesus said in Matthew 12, a good man out of the good treasure of his heart, interesting connection there, right? A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things, and an evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth evil things. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Maybe you even knew that verse. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. You see, when it comes to our speech, as we've seen with other areas in our lives, it's not just the exterior that's the problem. It's not just your words that are the issue. It's a heart problem. And so to change the way you speak, it's not just biting your tongue. It's not just using a slang instead of the the real curse word. We're going to get to that in a minute. It's actually a heart transplant. That's what's needed. You need a heart transplant. And that comes by setting Christ on the throne of our hearts, making him our treasure, because making Christ our treasure changes how we speak. And this passage gives us three reasons then to put off sinful speech. The first is found in verses 8 and 9. Look at it again with me. But now, Paul writes, you yourselves are to put off, that's a command, it's an imperative, put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth, do not lie to one another. And that that phrase, do not lie, is another imperative verb. It's another command. So the first reason that we put off sinful speech is we put off sinful speech since it spews venom. And what comes to mind when we say the words spews venom together? (laughs) We think of snakes, right? There are actually some types of cobras that can spit their venom at their attackers as a defensive mechanism. And we have to face the reality that sometimes that's what we do with our words. There's poison coming out of our mouths. And where does that poison come from? Our poison comes from the overflow of an angry heart. To spew is to, to, to gush forth in abundance. When I hear spew, I think of a waterfall cascading. And that's kind of what our words are sometimes, right? They just cascade out of us. But they're angry words. Did you notice the connection in verse 8? Last week, we studied the first three terms that deal with anger, anger, wrath, and malice. There's no break between anger, wrath, and malice in the next three terms. You see, the anger in our heart spills over in some way. Sometimes that's an angry action. Sometimes that's an angry deed or an angry plan. Paul here is pointing out that anger leads to angry words. It's like when you when you fill the kettle on the stove too much, too, too full of water, when it starts to boil, what does it do? It overflows, it spills over, and when your heart is angry, it's not going to be contained inside. It's going to spill over somehow. Anger spills out of the heart through our words. Jesus said in Matthew fifteen nineteen, for out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a person. And that list is, is a broad list. And what's Jesus's point? Is that all of our sin struggles come from where? Our hearts. 
So the solution to our sin struggles is to not just address the outside, but to address the inside. To deal with sinful speech at the root level, you have to replace the anger in your heart with what? Well, the passage continues in Colossians 3. If you look at verse 12, Therefore is the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies or compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, verse 13, forgiveness, verse 14, love. So when we, when we change our speech, it's not just, well, I'm still angry at this person, so, but, but instead of being angry at them, I'm going I'm to say bless you or something like that. That doesn't make any sense. To change our words, we have to change our heart. And most of the time, our words that are weapons against other people come because we're angry. Maybe not even angry at them, but just we're frustrated on the inside. If your heart is full of kindness and love and patience, what effect will that have on your words? What effect would that have on your words? I think it would transform them. And in a few weeks, as we get to the next part of Colossians 3, we'll talk about that. So ungodly speech spills out of an angry heart. But second, ungodly speech damages others. It damages others. Now, it doesn't damage others in the same way. Your speech is multifaceted. So so let's think about this for a minute. And I'm going to use the analogy of a political campaign for a moment. Okay? We're getting into political season already, unfortunately. And what do candidates do when they run? They really have one of two strategies when they're trying to promote themselves. They can either talk about me and my track record, how great I am and how I would make a great candidate, or you tear down the other candidates to show how terrible they are and you are the last man standing. It seems in America recently that that's more the strategy than a positive way to do it. Speech is used in that way. So let's think about that. Some speech we use sinfully to defend ourselves. This is like the candidate who tries to take the high road and only talk about themselves. And in politics, that's kind of like, wow, that's admirable. But actually, what are they doing? All they're doing is talking about themselves. If you were in a conversation with someone and that was their approach, that wouldn't be a fun conversation. Because all they do is talk about them. Do you know anyone like that? I have to ask, are you like that? Where it's, it just seems like you have a skill for turning every part of the conversation back to yourself. Oh, I don't know how that happened. Hmm. These speech habits are rooted in selfish pride. My words are constructing a favorable image of me. They're broadcasting my own greatness. They're defending me, perhaps. It, it's like a ministry of propaganda. That if I can just tell everybody what's, what I'm really like, then they'll believe this image, and so I'll defend myself. And so how does it show up in our life? It includes boasting or arguing or excessive talking or defensive speech or blame shifting. That's speech that defends myself in an, in an unbiblical way. But some speech attacks others. And this is what catches eyeballs in the political world, right? Most Americans would rather see two candidates scream and yell at each other and sling arrows at each other. I hate it personally. I'm like, this is not productive at all. We're we're not talking about policies or, or, or moving the nation forward. Anyway, I better stop. Some speech attacks others. 
And this is really rooted in angry pride. My words tear down, which is a more hurtful strategy than building others up or myself up. This is, if, if, if the former is a ministry of propaganda, this is a ministry of war. This is calling in airstrikes against other people. And this is the type of speech that we see here in Colossians 3, 8, and 9. It's the speech that zings and attacks other people around us. The first of which is blasphemy in verse 8. And blasphemy can be directed in, in two directions. We probably think that blasphemy is directed toward God, and that would be correct. Now, what is blasphemy? Blasphemy is speech, as you can see on the screen, that injures others, that defames them, that's derogatory toward them. And there's a lot of blasphemy that takes place in our culture. I was talking to someone before the service, and we were talking about how the music industry blasphemes God, even using biblical titles or, or, or things that are more of Christian in nature, and then reversing what the song is about so that instead of exalting God, it's literally blaspheming God. But we can't get too comfortable saying, well, I don't blaspheme God just because I'm a Christian. Do you take God's name in vain? I, I'm honestly a little embarrassed by the amount of Christians who, who use the Lord's name, just kind of off the cuff. Does that honor him? We can blaspheme in ways that we're not even realizing. So yes, blasphemy is toward God, but it's also toward others. You can blaspheme others in that you're injuring them. Now, if you have a modern translation, a New American Standard, an ESV, an NIV, you're probably seeing the word slander, and that's an accurate translation as well. You're slandering someone else. And slandering can, can really come in two ways. Slandering can be done to your face or behind your back. When we slander behind someone's back, we're gossiping about them. This is the type of person that's all smiles when you see them and everything's great. And, and I don't know why I picture a southern drawl in my mind when this happens. Y'all are just so sweet over there. I hope none of you are from the south. Okay. Uh, but they're sweet to your face and then what happens? You find out later that they've been backstabbing you. So it, it can happen that way. Are you gossiping? Because if you say, no, I never gossip, first of all, you're just not being honest. <laughs> it happens, okay? But is gossip a habit in your life? Is your reputation such that when people think about telling you something, they actually don't because you spread things about them? That your lips are too loose, that you're not trustworthy, so slandering others can happen behind someone's back, but you can also slander someone to their face. This is the abusive language where you just walk up to someone and say, I hate your guts. You're kind of like, pardon me? And you say mean things or, or abusive things to them. And though I hope that none of us in our church would do that, life experience says that we still sin. We still say mean things. And some of us think it's a virtue that, that you know what, I got something to say and I'm just going to say it to your face. Well, it's still ungodly. <laughs> just happens to be to you, not about you. Our speech is to be seasoned with grace, as we'll see in a moment. That's blasphemy. 
And I, I don't want us to just say, oh, well, I don't take God's name in vain, so I'm good. It, do we slander and hurt others? Do we zing other people? The second one is filthy language. Speech that corrupts others. Speech that corrupts others. There's a, a variety of translations for this word because it's the only time this Greek word is used here in the Bible. The, the dictionary says that it's speech of a kind that's generally considered poor in taste, obscene, or dirty. So there's kind of a broadness to it, so let's, let's break this down. This type of speech corrodes the character of someone else. And, and when I think of corrode, I always think of my battery in my car. That, oh, my battery died, and I look at it, and there's this buildup where it's corroded, and now I'm like, now i got to call John in shame because I didn't take care of my car, and he's going to make fun of me, and then he's going to fix it for me, and everything's going to be good. But we do the same thing. We, we corrode other people through what we say. How do we do that? This type of speech corrodes because it slowly turns a person away from things above toward things below. See, I'm still not quite getting it. Here's an illustration of it. Peter says this about Lot when he lived in Sodom. For that righteous man dwelling among them tormented or vexed his righteous soul from day to day. How? By seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. You can have your character corrupted by seeing and hearing sinful things. When I was in high school and college, I would work a job kind of in between semesters and such. And the, the men that worked with me were foul-mouthed. Many of you have the same experience. Many of you are going to go back to this type of scenario tomorrow. And it wears on you. Over time, you, you start to feel like your mind is starting to think those things also. And you don't want to think in curse words, but you're hearing it so much that, that, that it, it's corroding your character. Or how about this? There are TV shows or movies or what, however you view media today where there's nothing necessarily that bad, but it's the language that, that, that just through the gossip and through the lewd comments that are made time and time again, maybe it's humorous, but it's, it's innuendo. Over time, what ends up happening? Your character starts to be shaped by what you, as Lot did, by what you see and what you hear. And we have to confront this fact that sometimes our language out of our mouth corrodes other people. Our language is not passive. And there are really two different ways that we corrode. The first, as I mentioned a moment ago, is lewd speech. It's speech that's sexually inappropriate. In fact, Ephesians chapter 5 addresses this. Ephesians 5, 4 says... Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse jesting, coarse or, or off-color joking, we could say, which are out of place. They're not fitting, but rather thanksgiving. When we make jokes with one another about coarse or, or, or inappropriate things, we're corroding our, ourselves and others. It is a big deal. An off-color joke here or there is not something to laugh at and move on. It's something that we ought to put off and avoid. Now, in the workforce, you probably can't help when other people say these things. 
But instead of ingesting them into your heart, chewing on them, laughing over them, thinking about them, resist them immediately. If Christ is your treasure, lewd speech shouldn't be funny to us. And unfortunately, everything in Hollywood is just about this. I don't watch a lot of TV, but I see enough that it's just there. It's like if you can't make people laugh, use an innuendo and everybody laughs. Christians ought not to be that way. But it also includes obscene talk like cursing. And, and I've, heard, <laughs> I've heard before that cursing's nowhere forbidden in the Bible. It says, thou shalt not curse. And I'm kind of like, well, I'm not sure you've got the Bible accurate. Uh, but, but even if it doesn't say thou shalt not use a curse word, this verse condemns it. Because cursing and, and debasing language corrupts and corrodes. Even casual cursing. Some people are like, well, I didn't use the real word. I used the slang. Okay, that's better, I guess. But is it still glorifying to God? Is it still exalting Christ your treasure? Think of it that way. It's probably not. Corroding speech needs to be laid aside. And then lying. Speech that misleads others. And this is in verse 9. It, it opens with the command, do not lie to one another. We're people of the truth, right? Christians are people of the truth. Our Savior is, literally, the way, the truth, and the life. But this command, lest we let ourselves off the hook again, is more than just don't tell a lie. Well, I didn't mean to tell a lie. It just happened that way. This word actually reminds us and teaches us that the motive behind what we say is just as important. Here's what the word means. To communicate what is false with the evident purpose of misleading. Do you use language that misleads others? Well, it's not a lie. But is it really the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? When we define the word this way as the Bible does, a whole host of sins are now condemned like flattery, exaggeration, half-truths, white lies, withholding pieces of information, and even duplicity and hypocrisy. Uh, if you're a parent, you know exactly what this is, right? Occasionally, we get one of our boys blitzing through the house, and we say, hey, and it happens to all three of them, doesn't it? Hey, 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 what are you doing? Nothing. My favorite is when the three-year-old says, something. Is that true? Technically, he is doing something. Is that what I'm after in that situation? No, I want to know exactly what your plans are. And so he's trying to, to give an honest answer. I mean, he's a three-year-old, so he's not thinking through this, but he's trying to give an honest answer, but not really let on what he's actually doing. And some of you do this all the time. You give enough of an answer at work so that your boss gets off your back, but it's not the truth. You, you, you tell your spouse that you're going to do something, but, but you're really not moving toward it at all. You can even slip into trying to do this with God. Well, God, I kind of did this. I, I kind of obeyed, and we end up like Saul. The bleeding of the lambs are behind him. Samuel comes to him and says, you haven't obeyed. He says, but I have obeyed. No, you haven't, Saul. You only did part of the Lord's will. If we practice these things, blasphemy, filthy language, 
and lying, we can't be trusted. We have to be people who speak with grace and truth. Your words are weapons. We have to put off sinful speech because it spews venom. But there's a second reason in verses 9 through 10. Do not lie to one another since you put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. The second reason is this. Put off ungodly speech since you have been changed. And if you've been here with us week after week the last month, this probably is not a surprise to you because I've hit on it basically every sermon. You belong to Jesus now. Verses 9 and 10 talk about putting off and putting on, and that is the process of transformation, but it's in the past tense. It's we have put off and we have put on. So this is categorically showing us that when we came to faith in Jesus, we stepped away from who we used to be and became a new person. 2 Corinthians 5.17, behold, anyone that is in Christ is a new creature or new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. What is Paul's point in this passage? Is that if you have put off the old way of living and you've put on the new way, then you have hope that you can change. Because when you come to faith in Christ, you have the power and the enablement through the Holy Spirit's ministry to lay off the old way of living to be renewed, to be transformed. So there's hope when you come to faith in Christ that you can change, but the reverse is true also. That if you've never come to faith in Christ, you can make modifications to your life. Maybe even you can have enough willpower to overcome something, but it's not really transformation because you haven't addressed the heart. Transformation comes through faith in Christ. And so if you're here, whether you've been here for weeks and weeks or this is your first time and you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, today is the day of salvation. Colossians 1, 21 through 23 that we studied months ago now talks about being reconciled to God. You were born in hostility through faith in Christ because of his dying on the cross and his resurrection from the tomb. You can be saved. You can be born again. And that language of birth is, is throughout Scripture. We were born one way into sin. A second birth is necessary to come to Christ. For those of us who, who have received Christ by faith, this is a huge reason, a huge motivation why we lay off sins. Because we belong to Jesus now. We're, we're Christ's children. We're part of his family. Verse 10 also talks about the process of being transformed. You have been changed at salvation, but as I mentioned last week, we, though we are part of Christ's family, we still live in Adam's broken world. And so the process of becoming more like Christ is a daily discipline dependent on the Spirit of God. And so every day we are being transformed into Christ's image. That's what the word renew in verse 10 means. The word renew means to make new again with the implication of making something better. And if you're like, Zach, you've said that seven times. Good, I'm getting through. (laughs) To renew is to change your mind for the better. Well, what are we changing our mind 
to? Like, what's the goal out there? Verse 10 says that the goal is to be conformed to the image of Christ, created after him in true likeness. We are becoming more and more like Christ. But how? How does that happen? Well, verse 10 gives us that truth as well. It's according to knowledge. It's as we study the scriptures and know God, and become, then we become like Christ. You cannot know Christ and serve him faithfully if you never read your Bible, if you don't understand what the word says. Now, the inverse can be dangerous as well. Just because you know the Bible doesn't make you godly. But be really clear here about verse 10 in your minds. The process of change comes through our knowledge as we resemble Christ more and more. And resembling Christ is not simply knowing about him. It's, it's every part of our life looks like and lives like Jesus. That's a high standard. So let's turn it back to our speech. How did Jesus speak? He spoke with tenderness and truth. He spoke with kindness and clarity. He confronted when needed, but he did it out of love. There were times that he even used some pretty harsh, straightforward words to the religious leaders. But why did he do it? He did it because he loved people. Our speech must be replaced with grace and truth. Verse 11 gives us a third reason. Let's let's continue. Third reason to put off sinful speech. And this seems like a digression. At least for me it does. Maybe you're like, oh no, it flows perfectly. It, It seems like a little bit of a digression. The end of verse 10, created according to the image of him who created him. Where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Well, the the, the key here is understanding that the new man, in verse 10, is not simply your new self. It's a new humanity. It's a new body that Christ is creating. And that new body that Christ is creating is the church. Put off ungodly speech, third, because you are part of Christ's body. Remember, what's the title for today's sermon? Your words are weapons. Well, when we sling our arrows around the room, who are we wounding? Our brothers and sisters in Christ who are part of Christ's body. Your speech should exalt Christ, not self. The end of verse 11 says Christ is all. The most important part of the body is Jesus. It's not you. In the Middle Ages, people in in the scientific establishment thought that the universe revolved around the earth. Because from our vantage point, it sure seems like everything else is revolving around us. And I think sometimes we read that mentality into our lives, that we believe in practice that everyone out there exists for me. Or at least they, they should orbit around me. Maybe, maybe they're not for me, but, but at least they should take into account my life. That's just selfish. You're not the head of the church. Praise God that none of us are. Jesus is the head of the church. He is the greatest treasure of the soul. He is the preeminent one in all the universe. So who does sinful speech exalt? You guessed it. It exalts me. We injure others to make ourselves look better. We corrupt others because we don't really love them. We love ourselves. We mislead others because we have an agenda or a a motive to gain something at their expense. We're not serving Christ when we do this. 
Christ is all, and that means he is Lord of your mouth and your speech also. And if you have a heart that says, you know, my speech isn't perfect, but I want to please the Lord, I commend to you Psalm 19:14. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. And it's interesting even here that, that the psalmist connects the musings of our hearts to the words of our mouths. What is in our hearts will spill out. So your speech should exalt Christ, not self. And then second from verse 11, your speech should unify the body, not tear it apart. And the bulk of verse 11 is showing us that the church is one body. Because in spite of great diversity, we are still one. There are several pairs of words here in verse 11. Perhaps you can see them in your Bible. Greek nor Jew. Well, in this context, that was the greatest ethnic divide in the first century because the Jews felt that they were God's chosen people because they were, but instead of understanding that their mission was to live for God so that others would come to him, they thought that they were to separate from everyone else and everyone else was beneath them. And yet in the church, Ephesians 2 says that, that in this body, in this place, the wall of hostility is being broken down. And so in Christ's body, there's no, neither Greek nor Jew. There's neither circumcised nor uncircumcised, and that was a way to distinguish between Jews and Gentiles. But it also shows up, circumcision does earlier in chapter 2, that was one of the things that this false teaching was encouraging. And by slipping this in here, Paul's not just saying, hey, if you're over in this category, you're fine, and you're over in this category. He's striking at the heart of the false teaching, saying your physical body doesn't matter when you come to faith in Christ. Jesus saves you. He continues, barbarian and Scythian, what's he talking about there? Well, the Greeks demeaningly referred to anyone who didn't speak Greek as barbars barbarians. Because to them, the Greeks with their pure language, that's what the philosophers would say, everyone else who talked like that sounded like Charlie Brown's teacher, barbarian. And Paul's saying, it doesn't matter if you're a barbarian, if you're on the outcast of society, if you're lower to some, you're all in. Now what about Scythians? Scythians were people that were the extremes of the barbarians. They were like the redneck pagans. <laughs> as it were. And Paul's saying that even they get in. Then he says, slave nor free. Half the Roman Empire was slaves. Every church in the New Testament had slaves in it. And one of the things that we see showing up in the church at uh, at Corinth, excuse me, at Corinth, is that the, the rich people were really living a separate Christian life than the poor. They were abusing the Lord's table, for instance, because of their wealth. And Paul is saying here, it doesn't matter what your status is. In the church, you are one. So each of these phrases, each of these pairs, we would say, shows that the the body is unified. Ethnic lines, racial groups, social status, those are the things that humanity always separates over. There's social stratas. There's layers to society. There's ethnic or racial tensions. That's the way sinful people divide up. And you know what the the church is all about? 
Jesus. And it doesn't matter if you're from any other part of the world. It doesn't matter if you're from high or low socially. All that matters is that you have faith in Christ and we are now one. And so what does our speech do? Our speech attacks the very people Jesus died for. Amidst all the diversity in the body, Jesus is the unifying factor, and so we, we shouldn't wound the body of Christ. Our physical bodies give us an analogy here, right? None of us would want to wound ourselves. We want to make sure that our bodies are healthy, and when one part of the body is broken, the rest of the body suffers. You're probably familiar with that. You heard the phrase, shooting yourself in the foot? Some of you are like, yeah, I live that every week. <laughs> shooting yourselves in the foot. It's actually from World War I, when the soldiers were in trenches and they would live there for interminably long times, just endless amounts of time, and some would get so mentally stricken that they actually shot themselves in their own foot so that then they would be evacuated and get off the front line. It was ultimately selfish. I, I don't blame them in that instance, okay? But if, if you're a, on the unit there on the front lines and your buddy Joe shoots himself in the foot and he says, see you guys, you don't like him. Because you're hurting the whole group. And that's the point. When we zing other people with our words, we're not just hurting them, we're hurting Christ and we're hurting everybody else. Because we're Christ's body, any wounds done to one of his people are inflicted upon him. To what lengths are you willing to go to injure Christ and corrupt his people to get what you want? I've mentioned several times our speech has to be replaced with grace that comes from Colossians 4, 6. Let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how to, how you, let me slow down, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. Gracious speech, true speech is our calling. Instead of using our words as weapons, use them like medicine to heal and to uplift. Now the last few weeks, we've examined the sins listed in Colossians 3, sexual immorality, anger, speech today. And last Sunday, someone came up to me uh, afterward and said, hey, you got us all convicted about anger, but you didn't tell us, like, in the moment, what do I do? Like when the driver cuts me off on the road and I'm like, I don't have time to pull out your sermon notes. He didn't say this, but I don't have time to pull out the sermon notes and walk through it. So how do I respond in the moment of temptation? That's a great question because that's where the rubber meets the road, isn't it? That's, that's practical. And so what I'd like to do is, is introduce to you five steps to overcome temptation in the heat of the battle. You say, well, that's, that's gonna be too much. No, it's a single word, arise, A-R-I-S-E. And hopefully that word resonates because when temptation comes, we want to arise and fight it and overcome it. So how do we arise? How do we battle temptation when the moment strikes? The first step is and always is ask the Holy Spirit for help. Spiritual battles cannot be fought in your own strength. You need the Spirit of God. This is grace-driven effort, dependent discipline, as Jerry Bridges says. This is our teaspoon of effort and God bringing the dump truck of grace. It's through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. 
Philippians 2, 12 and 13. You exercise, you work out your faith, and you do it with fear and trembling because it's God who works in you. And this week as I was meditating on this and reading, I came across this quote from Jonathan Edwards. We are not merely passive, nor yet does God do some and we do the rest. It's not a timeshare here. But God does all and we do all. God produces all and we act all. For that is what he produces in and through our own acts. You say, I'm not sure I follow. Catch it here. God is the only proper author and fountain We only are the proper actors. We are in different respects, wholly passive and wholly active. We're wholly passive as we depend on the Holy Spirit. But we are also wholly active when we engage our wills and resist the temptation, which is what letter R is. Resist immediately. And when I say immediately, I mean like within three seconds. You say, why did you choose the number three? Because it's fast. (laughs) When temptation comes, resist immediately. Why? Because James 1 says that sin is tempting us and temptation is like conception. It's trying to conceive into sin. So don't let it do that. When sin is knocking at the door, don't linger. Resist it immediately. Third, I inject God into the situation. Don't listen to yourself you have to start preaching to yourself. It's what I wrote about in the rundown this past week. Our sinful heart likes to think and justify and lie to ourselves. And what are we supposed to do? If you sin, you, you end up listening to your sinful heart. But what are we called to do? As people of the truth, we are called to remind ourselves of truth. We're called to preach truth to ourselves. You can rehearse truth in such a rapid way that you reset the temptation. Because all of this is happening very quickly, right? In the heat of temptation, you may not have much time to think. You're not sitting there going, oh, I'm going to pull out and read the gospel of Mark. You don't have time for that. You have three seconds to say, Jesus, I need your help through your spirit. I'm saying no, and I'm remembering that you are good and more satisfying. That's how fast it is. Or you're saying, you know, I'm tempted to to gossip. Spirit, give me grace to bite my tongue and speak truth in a way that pleases you. It's that fast. But God has to be stepped into the situation. Now, what I want to encourage you to do is after the temptation, if you find that there's a pattern, you're frequently tempted to gossip, you're frequently tempted to be angry, then take some time afterwards and renew your mind. Study the scriptures according to knowledge. Learn what God has said so that when the lies come to you, you have truth to fight it. When the temptation comes, you're ready with thoughts of truth from the word. Believe what is true instead of swallowing the lie. Remember God's character, who he is. Remember God's commands, what he says. Remember God's commitments, what his promises are. Because your view of God makes all the difference in the world. If you view God As he presents himself in scripture, you will choose not to sin. You go all the way back to the Garden of Eden. And what did Satan do to Eve when he tempted her? He actually never said, take this fruit. He said, hey, Eve, what did God say? And his attack was not do this. It was 
don't trust him. That's why our view of God makes all the difference in the world. Because if we know that God is good and loving and faithful and true and righteous and holy, these thoughts will have practical outworkings into our life. So ask the Holy Spirit for help. Resist immediately. Inject God into the situation. S. And there are three S's in this one, so you can take your pick. Seek satisfaction in the Savior. This is the secret to fighting sin. Do you believe that Jesus is more satisfying than any sin? Or do you find sin to be perfectly satisfying? Does anyone here find cotton candy to be satisfying? Our boys learned that lesson a few weeks ago the hard way. That's what sin is. It looks really good. You trick yourself into thinking, oh, it'll be different this time. It leaves an empty taste in your mouth. Let me summarize what John Owen said at this point. He said this, when a believer tastes the satisfaction of the Savior, sin will be bitter on the tongue. What you treasure affects your choices. Because when you're treasuring Christ, you won't want things that are lesser. I'll give you a personal illustration. I don't eat bad donuts anymore. You say, what's a bad donut? Basically anything other than yummies, that's a bad donut. You know, the, the King Supers ones, the Safeway ones, which are slightly lesser in my mind, in my hierarchy, I, I just don't waste the calories on them. It's just not worth it to me. Why? Because I don't want to demean myself by eating lesser donuts. You said that's a stupid illustration. Yeah, but it got the point across. When you know Christ in all his glory, you don't go after cheap imitations. You're so infatuated with the real thing that you don't go back to shadows. When you enjoy Jesus and you've tasted his goodness, your appetite for sin diminishes over time because you're being satisfied on substance. Therefore, fight desire for sin with greater desire for Jesus. Because sometimes when we're being tempted, we, we, we have this image in our mind of like the dog with, with, with a treat on the end of its nose and it's drooling because it's just, I want it so bad, but its master said, no, no, wait, wait. That's not an accurate picture of temptation. You realize that. Temptation is like walking through the grocery store and seeing those fake pies that are like gelatin for filling and they've been expired for like two years and, and my kids still say, can I have that? That's what temptation is. Is there a moment of happiness when you indulge? Yes. But you know what the real thing is like? It's like saying, we don't want that junk because at home is grandma's award-winning, hot, out-of-the-oven, real apple pie. Because we have something so much better. That's how we have to start thinking about temptation that we have something so much better in Christ. So why would we settle for lesser things? Seek satisfaction in your Savior, and then finally, escape the temptation. And there are a couple of ways that you can escape the temptation. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, and 14 says that God is faithful to always make a way of escape. And that way of escape comes in two forms. You can either endure the temptation, you resist it without giving in, or you flee the temptation. You get away from it. You remove yourself from it. That's what Joseph did. 
He endured the situation as long as he could, but then escaped when he needed to. God gives grace to either endure the temptation or remove yourself from it. Arise, overcome temptation. Holy Spirit gives you help. Resist immediately. Bring God into the situation. Be satisfied in your Savior and then escape the temptation. Let me conclude by wrapping it up and applying it specifically to your words. I would encourage you this week to pick out the area of your speech that is most weaponized. You know, over in Europe, still this year, they're finding World War II ordinances that are not exploded. There was, I think, uh, five of them this year (laughs) that have been found. Imagine going to dig for like a new road and coming across a you know, a 2,000-pound bomb. Well, that's kind of like what our words are. That's the analogy that I've been using. So find the weapon doing the most damage and de-arm it this week. Spend the next two, three, four weeks looking at the scriptures to overcome the area of your speech that is most ugly, that is most hurtful. Pray every day. Ask the Lord to help. Remind yourself of truth. Delight in your Savior, and the Spirit will transform you to resemble Christ. Father in heaven, thank you for your goodness to us and your grace. We need you. We're desperate for you. But we also understand through this passage that we don't just let go and let you work. We have to engage our wills. But we do it in full reliance and in full empowerment by the Holy Spirit. So strengthen us, we pray, for the task ahead. Strengthen each one here as they go back to their lives tomorrow, this afternoon even, as they go to work and and mingle with people who corrode their character, as they go back into into situations that will frustrate them and and provoke them to to say things that they shouldn't. We pray that your protection would be on our, our flock, on our church, and that we would glorify you in this area of our speech. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to audio from Red Rocks Baptist Church. If you enjoyed this content, please consider sharing it with others. Our mission at Red Rocks Baptist Church is to know Christ and to make Him known. May God bless you as you follow Him.